I think I found my place in history. Uh, I moved to Boston about five years ago, um, but before then I had walked the Freedom Trail a few times. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure many of you have as well. If you've walked the Freedom Trail, raise your hand. Okay, so you at least know what I'm talking about. That's helpful. Um, you know we live in Boston. This is like the place of the American Revolution, right? So you walk the Freedom Trail, you see places like the old state house, you see Paul Revere's house, you see the old North Church where they put up the lanterns, and the American Revolution occurred there, right? So I've enjoyed living in Boston, being able to see those kinds of things, um, but it's always felt like just kind of at a distance, you know, walking through these things, uh, just trying to gather information. It's history, right? It's cool for some of us, at least. Um, but this week, I found out that somehow, some way, I had a place in that. Well, maybe not me, but um, my aunt, so this is my mom's sister, is all into Ancestry.com stuff and genealogies and things. If you've been interested in those kinds of things or have a family member who's just enamored, can I see who you might be? Three of us. Four? Okay, some of us. That's good. So apparently, I have somewhere, a grandfather, I don't know how many generations, uh, fought in the Revolutionary War. So found my place in history. So next time I walk the Freedom Trail, um, I could think, is this where my great, 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 so on, grandfather stood? Um, I thought that was very interesting. interesting. His name is Jacob Parkerson. So I found my place in history. As you look at your genealogy, some of you are interested in that apparently To I think there's something about genealogies that interests us at least when it relates directly to us. When it's somebody else's, it makes no sense, and we're not really all that interested in it, right? But this related to me. And so I think the reason why we go to genealogy is to see, one, where do we even come from? And two, how can we get some meaning out of this? How does this relate to me? How does this give me a purpose in this life? I think some of that is what we get out of a genealogy. Now, when we go to a genealogy in the Bible, it doesn't often feel that way. More often than not, we just skip over it, and it looks like a bunch of nothingness. But today, that's what we're going to look at. In Genesis chapter 10, we're going to read an extensive genealogy. Now, I went to some uh, reformers who really cared about the Bible uh, to try to get some insights on what they thought about this. You've heard of Martin Luther and John Calvin and people like that, probably. Um, they said things like this. Genesis 10 and things like them seem to contain a useless multitude of names. Like, oh man, that's really helpful. Um, I also read that this chapter is considered full of dead words. Oh man, all right. You guys are not very helpful to me, but thankfully they continued on and they said that genealogies, they aren't just dead words. They're not just a useless multitude of names, but they continued and said they actually contain weighty doctrine. And are for many reasons necessary for the church. Martin Luther said, related to this very genealogy here in chapter, Genesis chapter 10, that there is a thread that is drawn from the very first things of the world through the middle and to the end of all things. So genealogies tell us a lot about theology. And I hope that's what we'll get out of this today. I was also preparing here, trying to get some help on how do I even get some of this meaning out of a genealogy. So I'm hoping that today will be helpful to us in this way, okay? So 
here's, here's some helps to us. I'm going to read this, but also want to help us to be able to learn how to read a genealogy to get something out of it. So there's three things I want to do during our time together, and maybe that will be helpful for you in your own Bible study. Um, three things that we can do. One, we can look in it, look in it. Second, look around it. And third, look through it. So look in it, look around it, look through it. Um, that really applies to just about anything that you read in the Bible, but it, it does apply to genealogies in a way that help us to get some of this meaning, this weighty doctrine that these reformers talked about. So part of our time is going to track along some of those questions, looking in it, looking around it, looking through it. Now, in all that, here's what I hope you get out of reading a genealogy that might seem like dead words to you. It's that I hope at the end of our time together, that you will have a fuller understanding of God's grace. For your life, that you would have a fuller understanding of God's grace. Not only that, but that you'll see your place in his global mission. God gives grace and he's on a mission to save people of all nations of the world. And I hope that you'll see how you are included in on that. So that's what I hope you get out of all of this. Now, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. If you're looking on one of the hardback black Bibles around you, you can find this on page 7. Um, if you're new to church, if you're just visiting with us, we like to mention this at the beginning of our sermons. But if you do not have a Bible, we love to give away Bibles. Please take one. We have some in the lobby. Uh, take one of those as a gift from us to you and read it. Um, but as we open up to Genesis chapter 10, you'll see that on page 7. Uh, I hope you'll follow along with me. As I read this, I want to challenge you to do something. Don't just tune out, but I want you to try to note the parts of this that break the pattern. Okay? The parts of this genealogy that break the pattern. So here we go. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riftaf, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham... Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush uh, fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Resin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kaluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Thank you for being patient with me. Uh, verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Ardavites, the Zimorites, and the Hamarthites. After the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. 
And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, uh, Sheleph, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzel, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, Jobab, all these are the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they live extended from Misha in the direction of Shephar the, to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So from reading that, you might recognize how upon initially looking through this, it seems like a bunch of dead words, a bunch of long names. But we're going to look in it. We're going to look around it. We're going to look through it. As we do so, here's what I believe the main point of this passage is. is that God graciously distributes the nations through the sons of Noah. God graciously distributes the nations through the sons of Noah. Now, in the first part of the sermon today, we're going to look in the passage and around it. Like I said, we're going to look in it and around it. God's, God graciously distributes the nations through the sons of Noah. We're going to look through it a little bit later. So first, from that main point, I want us to see that this is an account of God's grace. As we read these many names, it's generally positive in its relation to who the nations are. And we get a little bit of an indication of that as we look around it a little bit. So if you just glance up a couple verses into chapter 9, you'll see the end of another genealogy. So chapter 9, verse 28 says, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, if you've been with us during these sermons through Genesis, that might sound a little bit familiar. And if it does to you, that is the very same pattern that the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 went through. And if you remember, and you can glance over there in your Bibles if you want to, what was repeated over and over and over again was death. This person died. So-and-so died. And what that was highlighting was what happened in the world as a result of sin. Adam and Eve sinned against God. Cain killed his brother Abel. And so on and on and on, that genealogy goes that death entered into the world because of sin. And at the end of chapter 9, it becomes interesting because it's as if the whole flood narrative of Noah was just a digression from a genealogy. If you look at the end of chapter 5, you'll notice that Noah is kind of left on a cliffhanger. He doesn't die, but he does at the end of chapter 9. And so leading us into chapter 10. Interesting. 
So one genealogy was highlighting death. This one, on the other hand, is more generally positive about those is is talking about the people, who they are. It's generally positive. And so what we have here, we're, we're going from the flood narrative into, you'll see chapter 11, if you flip over in your Bibles, the Tower of Babel, and then you go into more narrative. So this is more historical kinds of things. And so we have this bridge. There's a bridge being developed from Genesis chapter 9 all the way to Genesis chapter 12. And the bridge is from Noah to the next main character in Genesis, who is Abraham. Or as we're introduced to him, his, his name is Abram there. So we're getting this bridge from the flood to the promise. In the very first, in the opening of this passage, <clears throat> what we read, verse 1, it says, these are the generations of Noah, right? So you see that there. The last time we heard about generations was, again, in Genesis chapter 9. And here's what it says, verse 12. It's related to the rainbow, which, if you remember, was a sign of the covenant. God had flooded the earth because of the sin of the nations, of the peoples of the world. He brought this flood, and then afterwards he saved a few. And he put this sign of the covenant in the sky so that they would recognize that God himself would never do that again. So the rainbow was a sign of a covenant, was a reminder of God's grace to them. And so Genesis chapter 9 verse 12 says of the rainbow that it was a sign of the covenant for future generations. Now, when we read Genesis chapter 10, what are we reading? It's future generations, right? And so God is positive about all of these people. It's showing how God is being gracious to these multitude of nations, if we have eyes to see it. When God gives the covenant to Noah, <clears throat> I read a commentator who, who said this, this was very helpful. When he put the rainbow up in the sky, the sign of the covenant. He said it's as if this warning of an imminent flood, so Noah out telling all of his neighbors about a flood that was coming, it's as if this warning of an imminent flood is being transformed into a promise of permanent security. So God is no longer going to take their life away from them, but will rather graciously give it to them. He's going to be gracious. He's going to have a kind of permanent security. Well, what he has done in the past, he will never do again. So they're getting some assurance here that God is being gracious to them by giving them the very life they are living. So these people would know this. They are the future generations who receive this sign of the covenant. Some more evidence that this is pretty positive is that there are sons born, born to them. Now, that should jump off the page to us a little bit if we recognize that all of the other generations were just wiped out. God had given a command for the people to be fruitful and multiply, and now they're doing that. So God is being gracious to the people, granting them children. We're also seeing in here that from that, from this small group of family that was saved through the flood, is that there is a kind of unity of the nations. There is a unity of all of these people. There's something that they all have in common, and they're coming from this line of grace through the line of Noah. There's a common ancestry, and there's a common need among them all. There's a unity among the nations. And to just shout at us again from the very first verse of this genealogy, we read, after the flood. Now, when we read that, it should be shocking to us that there is anything after the flood, because God just wiped out everything. But God is reminding us that there was something that happened after the flood. 
Now, as we consider genealogies, as you consider your own life, I wonder if you think about your very life as being a gift of God's grace. I think oftentimes we, we wake up in the morning, we might drink a cup of coffee or tea for those of you other. If you don't drink one of those, I don't even know what you do in the mornings. But we get into these ordinary patterns of life and we often don't slow down to think. God has given me breath this morning. And the reality is for all of you here, God has given you breath right this very moment. So God has been gracious to you. God is positive about his giving of life to people. And yet, in this genealogy, we don't only see positive things. We also get a realistic, not a reductionistic account of the nations. Or C, prominently in this genealogy, is that the nations are very flawed. We see that as we look around the passage. So this genealogy is situated between two very terrible events. Chapter 9, we see this horrible sin of Ham, we see this curse on Canaan, right? And then afterwards, we see this Tower of Babel where the nations united together to try to make a name for themselves, being selfish and prideful. And so this is very realistic about the condition of the people. So it's positive. We're seeing God's grace to people who really don't deserve it. And so God is graciously distributing the nations. God is being gracious to these people. But then we continue on, we see God is graciously distributing them, and he's distributing the nations through the sons of Noah. And so that's most of this passage, that's what we'll walk through together now. So let's look at not just God's grace, but now the distribution of the nations. You'll see in verses 5, 20, and 31, there's some consistency in this genealogy. So we're looking in the genealogy now, there's repeated phrases. Each one of these sons of Noah, they're divided into lands, languages, families, and nations. So let's look at the first one. From verse 2 to verse 5, I'm going to title them the distant sons of Japheth. The distant sons of Japheth. So just glance your eyes down from verse 2 to verse 5. It's a longer list of names. In the midst of the other uh, brothers here, this is a relative little amount of information. But we do see at the very end, verse 5, that these are coastlands people. That's pretty much the only indication that we get. For all I know, these are people that just hung out next to the beach all the time. Um, but at the very least, they're distant in the sense that they are the farthest away from the people of Israel who would have first received the book of Genesis. So they're the farthest away. They're the nations that are kind of on the fringes, far away from Israel. So there's little details in this about Japheth. But um, if you have Greek ancestry, people assume that Javan was the beginning of the Greek peoples. So there's your little tidbit of information. That's all I got. The distant sons of Japheth. Okay, now let's look at the next line. We're going to see another genealogy. We're looking at through the sons of Ham. So we've got the distant sons of Japheth. I'm going to title the sons of Ham as the destructive sons of Ham. The destructive sons of Ham. Now you should ask, how in the world do you get a word like destructive from this? Well, let's look in it and see what we have. This is certainly the longest section. As you look at the genealogy, there's more time and space spent on this part of the genealogy than any of the others. So our question is why? Why would it be like that? And what you see as you read down through this, the people who would have originally read this passage, peoples and names of certain individuals would have rung a bell 
for them. And if you're familiar with the Bible, they might for you too. So let's look over these. Generally, from verse 7 to verse 12, you get this, uh, you get this line from Cush and Nimrod. Cush and Nimrod. So you see uh, nations like, uh, let's see, Babel and Assyria wind up coming up, and Nineveh. So if you're familiar with the Bible, those might bring up some memories for you. But before we get there, I want to highlight the fact that Nimrod gets a lot of attention here. Now, when we're looking at Nimrod, we're looking at an actual person. We're not looking at an insulting name that you would call somebody when you're little. Nimrod was an actual person, and we get kind of the beginnings of that, I think. But look at the details that are all around Nimrod. What's, what are things repeated around Nimrod? You'll see there that mighty is mentioned around him. <clears throat> it's mentioned several times. And so you see when Nimrod is introduced there in verse, uh, verse 8, it says he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. And then it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And then it uh, repeats that yet again. Now, what kind of association should we have in our minds related to this mighty man? I generally think of a mighty man as being like probably a good thing, like David's mighty men. He was with David as he uh, was protecting God's people and was leading them and shepherding them well. I actually think this mighty term is a very negative thing for Nimrod. So in this fact, in this, in this sense, we could call Nimrod a Nimrod. He was a mighty man, and I think this is connecting us to what his pride is. And how do I get there? The only other place that we've read about mighty so far was in the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. If you flip back there, you'll see that those were the mighty men of old. And they came about as the people were rebelling against God. There's confusion in, the, in that passage, but it is very clear that the Nephilim were not having positive associations with them. But Nimrod now is associated there strongly. He's mighty several times. So it's probably not a good indication for Nimrod that he's a mighty man. But also I want to highlight, they call him a mighty hunter. And they say that this is before the Lord. And that's repeated twice. You'll see that in there. I think that repetition is meant to be somewhat ironic. You've got this mighty man from the perspective of the people. But he's before the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. And I think biblically, it's showing that Nimrod maybe wasn't as mighty as he thought he was. And here's how I get that. He's connected to the Nephilim. You see the peoples that come after him. These are Babel, Assyria, and Nineveh. Uh, Babylon would be the people that come about as a result of Babel. Assyria and Nineveh. Those are associations of people who are enemies of the people of God. Later on in the biblical narrative, Babylon becomes Babylon the Great. Assyria was, the, was a group of people. They were godless, evil, and they inflicted violence on the people of God over and over and over again. If you remember, the people of Israel are in Judah and Israel a little bit later in Jerusalem. The people who overtook them were the Assyrians. And in Nineveh, you might recognize that from the book of Jonah. The Ninevites were not very good people, godless people. And so from Nimrod came all of these groups of people that were, in fact, very evil. And you get this long list of the enemies of God. 
Now, I said it was ironic. I think of this picture like this mighty hunter before the Lord. Um, some, have you seen Looney Tunes? You know this guy named Elmore Fudd, and he's a hunter, right? And he's always, he always says he's creeping around trying to catch Bugs Bunny. I think about that here in Belmont. There's rabbits everywhere. Um, so think about this. So you're a hunter after the rabbits. Good luck finding them. You'll probably find one on the street. So it's not very impressive to find a rabbit. So think, Elmer Fudd, he's creeping around. He says, be very, very quiet. I'm hunting rabbits, is what he says. He's hunting rabbits. So I think it's a pretty good illustration to think of Nimrod of that kind of hunter. Before the Lord, that's who he is. Listen to Psalm 50 about what God does related to the animals of the world. He says, Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12 says, For every beast of the forest is mine. God has just created every single beast of the forest. He says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I know the birds of the hills and all that moves on the field is mine. And he says to the people in Psalms, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. So you think about this mighty hunter in front of a God like that. It's ironic that he might even be considered mighty. He's a lot more like Elmer Fudd, searching a rabbit that he can never catch. So this is highlighting the problem of pride. You might remember there's all kinds of warnings against pride in the Bible. I'll just highlight one. James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride is something that we ought to be diligent to try to kill in our lives, not model ourselves after. Humility is the way of following the God of the Bible. It's the only way. If we measure ourselves against him, it's the only way that we ought to live. So pride is much more of a warning. And so we see that in this genealogy, Nimrod gives birth by his prideful actions to several great cities, Babel, Nineveh, Assyria. But we move on. Verses 13 through 14, we get Egypt. And then we also have highlighted the Philistines. Now, later on in the Bible, including the next book of the Bible in Exodus, what do we know about Egypt? Egypt are the peoples that enslaved the people of God. They enslaved the Hebrew people. And the Israelites, they would have known this reading it, that Egypt were the people who brutally enslaved them, literally oppressed them for 400 years. They would have associated this in their heads. It's interesting that the book of Genesis actually ends with Joseph dead in a coffin in Egypt, of all places. So Egypt, we also have the Philistines represented here. That's in parentheses. The author's trying to communicate something when you see parentheses. When you see, when you see the Philistines, you can think of someone like Goliath, positive or negative character in the Bible. Very negative. Another mighty man, or at least a assumed mighty man. It's a prideful, mighty man who contended against the Lord's people. Okay, that's Egypt and the Philistines. We're looking in it, looking around it. Let's go on. We get a longer section on Canaan. You can look down at verse 15. When we read Canaan, here's what would have come into their minds. The Canaanites are associated in the Bible with a sinful nation who actively deserve the wrath of God. When the people of Israel heard about the Canaanites, they would have associated in their heads things like curses, things like sin, things like arrogant pride. 
more specifically demon worship, violence against people, child sacrifice, the Canaanites and that long list of people, that is what they're associated with in the Pentateuch as you read other sections in it. So the Canaanites are over and over again reinforced as the enemies of God. And Moses is writing Genesis to these people who are supposed to go in and take over the promised land. God is giving them a blessing of a place to live. And so when, they, when, he, when he mentions Canaan here in the list of those peoples, those are the very people who Israel is supposed to drive out of the promised land. So again, you're seeing name upon name, people among people of negative associations, strongly negative. But there's a glimpse of grace here. If you look in verse 9, you see a description of this land. This is the very first definition of the promised land. The promised place where God's people would experience God's presence with them. They would experience his grace. And we get the first indication of that, verse 19. And so, there you have the destructive sons of Ham. See why they're destructive? The destructive sons of Ham. Now, the next list is the divided sons of Shem. The sons of Shem, you see that, verse 21. I'm going to call them divided the divided sons. That's verse 21 through 30, 31. Just glance down through there. I just want to highlight some details. If you look just in the first couple of verses there, you see the name Eber mentioned several times. And then you see the line kind of goes through him. So the details are Shem has all of these children. It, it eventually ends up in Eber. And then he has two sons that split. So you have Peleg and Joktan. Okay trying to visually represent uh, genealogy here. It's very difficult. But Eber apparently is very important. Now, why would it be important to these people who are called Hebrews? Because their very name would have come from this man named Eber. Eber was somehow associated with the term, the Hebrew term of Hebrew. So Eber is where the Hebrew people got their name from. And so therefore, it's highlighted here. So it's becoming apparent that Shem is a blessed line that we should pay attention to. But we're seeing a division happen. And uh, as, I, as we read it earlier, I wanted, I wanted to highlight the fact that it said that there was a division. The earth was divided. You saw that in verse 25. The earth was divided there. I think in some sense that's probably looking ahead to what would happen at the Tower of Babel, but it's also possibly indicating a division in the family of this promised line. There's a division between Peleg and Joktan, and so the rest of the genealogy there goes on to Joktan. Notice where it ends, verse 30. Look at the very last word in verse 30. It ends in the east. Now, what associations should we have with the east? If you remember, Genesis chapter 3, verse 34, Adam was cast out of the Garden of Eden to the east. Chapter 4, verse 16, Cain, who had murdered his brother Abel, settled in the land of the east. The next chapter, verse 11, in chapter 11, verse 2, we see that the peoples of the world that build the Tower of Babel, trying to build a name for themselves... They come from the east. So even in this blessed line of Shem, there's division and very possibly negative associations with them. Okay, so at the end of this genealogy, here's what you get. You have a distant, destructed, 
destructive and divided peoples. A distant, destructive, destructive and divided peoples. That's where we end this genealogy. Verse 32, we get somewhat of a conclusion. Just repetition of what has happened before, the nations spread. And so at the end of all of this, thank you for bearing with me, God graciously distributes the nations through the sons of Noah. It's worth mentioning here also that there are 70 nations listed. When you get to the end of this, there are 70 names. In Genesis, the number seven is quite significant, right? So what might that point us to? So we've looked in this passage, we've looked around it. Now I want to look through it. And I want to remind you of what I said earlier. What I hope you got out of this is a fuller understanding of God's grace, an understanding of God's global mission and how you are included in that. And I want to get us there by asking three questions. As we look through this passage, what are we supposed to see? First question is, what is the significance of this family? Why spend so much time in the first book of the Bible on all these names? What's the significance of this family? Well, it's tracing a promised offspring, someone who would come. And we've got an indication of that from Genesis chapter 3, you remember? The serpent was cursed for deceiving Eve into eating the fruit, and Adam neglected his responsibility there. Remember that? So there was a curse put on the serpent. And God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And this is crucial. He says, he shall bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. And so for the Hebrew people, for Adam and Eve, they would have been awaiting this promised offspring who would come and finally and completely take care of their enemy, the enemy against God. And so the significance of this family is that we're waiting for this someone. We're waiting for someone to make everything right again. Somehow, some way, the person who was going to make everything right again was going to come through this family. That's the significance of this family. And I think you can sympathize with the need that they had here. Do you experience a world full of pain and sin? Is your work hard? Like when you go to work, is it hard sometimes? Is childbearing painful? I'll take your word for it. It seems to be. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Do you, like the character Adam, feel ashamed for neglecting responsibility to lead those under your care? Do you, like Eve, regret giving in to the lust of your eyes? Do you, like Adam and Eve, feel that you need to hide from God because you've let him down? Do you, like the people surrounding Cain and Lamech, see needless violence inflicted on the innocent? Do you, like Noah, ache to see your friends and family saved from behaviors that are destructive to them? Do you, like the nations surrounding Nimrod, see people building kingdoms for selfish pride rather than the good of others? I think to a lot of those questions, we might say yes. And so we, just like them, are asking who? Who's the one who's going to make all of those things right again? And as we've read through Genesis, it's not Adam, because he neglected his responsibility. He rebelled against God. It's not Cain. The next man in the line, he murdered his brother. It's not Noah, who got drunk and naked in just the chapter before this one. It's not Noah's sons either. They wind up building a tower for their own name. 
But there's an anticipation in this genealogy that the people are waiting for that we no longer have to have. As people living on this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we don't have to ask those questions anymore. Who's going to make everything right again? It's the promised offspring. It's the one who's going to crush the head of the snake forever. It's the one who's going to deliver us from sin. And this promised offspring is Jesus Christ. He's the one who will deliver us from all of the worst things in this world. The things that we're anticipating to get rid of finally and fully forever. Luke chapter 3 traces Jesus' genealogy, and it does so through Peleg, Eber, Shem, Noah, and Adam. Jesus is the one who would come. So we no longer have to anticipate one who will deliver us from sin and destruction, the sin that lives inside of us. And so for you today, if you're here and you're kind of questioning Christianity and all of these things, I have some other questions. Do you see yourself distant from God? Look to this promised offspring. He's the one who came from heaven, and her, from, from heaven into earth to invite you into his very own heart. Do you struggle with pride? Likely all of us in the room. Look to Jesus, the one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Are you ashamed of your family lineage? As I speak about genealogies, well, look to Jesus. He came from a line of drunkards, prostitutes, murderers to rescue and provide healing. So we're all, as people, united in our origin and we're united in our need. And we all have a need for a sure and steadfast hope in this world. And the hope that we have as a result of this passage is that Jesus Christ is the hope of all the nations, you included. He's my hope. He's your hope. That's the significance of this family. Another question, what's the significance of these nations? God has a worldwide and universal authority. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1, right? God's created everything. But he also has a worldwide and universal plan of salvation. He has seen all of his creatures fall into sin. And so this is a list of the names that God is sending his people out into, bringing his message of hope and redemption. This becomes evident to us, Genesis chapter 12, when he calls Abraham. And he highlights the fact that God calls Abraham out of the nations. He calls him out of Babylon, of all places, the place of the evil ones. But he calls him out and he says, Abram, I'm going to give you a promise and make of you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. So the significance of this, of this list of nations is that God is already in the work of redeeming them. God is in the work of redeeming the very worst people in the world. That's what we're seeing here. That's the significance of these nations. Which leads me to another question. Where does the idea of missions begin in the Bible? You might have heard of the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make disciples of them all. I think that missions begins right here. And I think I have biblical evidence of this. Luke chapter 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples into the world. And do you know how many disciples he sends two by two? Seventy. Jesus sends 70 disciples out into the world. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So it's very likely that Jesus was reflecting on a passage like Genesis chapter 10. 
thinking of all the known nations of the world, and he's sending out disciples to give them the hope of their very nation, the hope that they could have redemption in him and in him alone. To the world God created is the world that he would redeem, and he would redeem it through his son. It becomes even more compelling when you look at the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the genealogy, starting with Abraham. And it ends, Matthew chapter 28, with Jesus sending all of his disciples into the world to make disciples of all nations. And so what I want to say from here is that there is a shift in the meaning of this passage. It's no longer simply about God graciously distributing the nations. It's about God summoning the nations. And not through distributing the sons of Noah, but through distributing you. You have a role to play in bringing all nations to come to know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what God has given all of us to do. I'm very grateful to, to be at a church that values this. At the end of this week, there's going to be a group of us going to Montreal. And so I'd invite for you to pray for us. There's a French-speaking people group there that's considered unreached. I think less than 1% of this people group affirms a faith in Jesus. So would you pray for us this week? We leave Thursday. We come back on Sunday. I'll be preaching at their church. So would you pray for me as I preach on Sunday? We're a church, and what a blessing it is to be at a church that cares about what God has given us as the first thing to do. Make disciples of all nations. So would you pray for us? Fred, Elliot, Charles, Waylon, Gloria, Nathan, Michelle, Kate, myself, pray for us. As we go about this work of sharing the gospel among the nations, would you pray for us? God's hope for the nations is that they would come to believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. Last question for you. As we're looking through this genealogy, I want to ask, whose kingdom and whose name are you living for? Whose kingdom and whose name are you living for? In this passage, in this genealogy, there's a little bit of a wordplay on the sons of Shem. Shem is the Hebrew word for name. There's a name associated with Shem. They're anticipating a name to come. We saw Nimrod building a kingdom of his own. Who are you living for? What kingdom? What name are you living for? Life is very fragile, and it's short. That is probably one of the biggest questions that you could ask yourself. What are you living for? Um, just on Friday, many of you know the name Tim Keller, author, pastor, evangelist in New York City. Had a long ministry, died on Friday. He's had an impact on a lot of us, probably in this room, is a big reason why a lot of people see cities as significant. He's very clear on the gospel. He's very clear about highlighting the, the, the idols that we have. He's been very clear about churches working together to do what we're talking about here, to be on mission. He's a very gracious man. He died. And so when someone who's made such an impact on you dies like that, and maybe you have people in your life this way, it leaves a mark. And as I reflected on just this instance, it caused me to be a little bit more introspective. Like somebody that I've looked up to is now not here. The great books. In fact, we have bookshelves out there. I think Tim Keller has a book today. If there's one, please grab it, take it home and read it. It'll be good for the benefit of your soul. 
And why do I bring that up here? Because we're reading a genealogy. All of us at one time, at one place in time, we're going to be in a genealogy, not because we're living anymore, but because we're not here anymore. John Piper, who's another pastor in Minneapolis, has had a long ministry as well. He talked about Luke chapter 10, of all things, this past week. Apparently, John Piper and Tim Keller had an email exchange where they were reveling in some of the truths of Luke 10. So that's why I'm even bringing this up. He said that just before Tim Keller died, they were speaking to each other. And he said, I want to give a particular word to young pastors, which is me, but I think this relates to anyone. But they were struck by what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. When the disciples were sent out into the harvest, they saw many wonderful things happen. The demons were subject to them in Jesus's name. They were seeing people come to faith. And Jesus responds to them. You know what he says? He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's amazing. That's what Jesus saw. But he says this, nevertheless, do not rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what do you rejoice in? Do you think about the accolades that you're getting in this world? Looking for the next promotion. Being a successful parent. And as good as all of those things are, what would cause your heart to rejoice the most? Those things are rejoicing that your name is written in heaven. So one day, all of our names will be written into a genealogy. And when our death comes, the meaning of our biological family tree is not going to matter. But what is going to matter is the meaning of your spiritual family tree. So, what name are you living for? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us grace through your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that through this passage that we would be compelled by the grace that you've shown in your son. And Lord, I pray that we might be compelled to be about your mission in the world, that we would see all of the nations as being under your authority. But especially for those who believe in you by faith. So for those who haven't come to know you, Lord, I pray that you might work. Show your grace to these people. And Lord, I pray that we would be about your kingdom. And your name would be the one thing that we, are li- that we live for and that we are known for. So, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.